Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds today. Can you please start by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your role? Sure, I am Celeste Watkins-Hayes. I am a new member of the faculty at the University of Michigan. I am a university diversity and social transformation professor. I am the Jean E. Fairfax Collegiate Professor of Public Policy in the Ford School of Public Policy. And then I'm a professor of sociology in LSNA. And in what areas does your research focus? My research is at the intersection of inequality, uh, public policy, and institutions. And specifically, I look at the role of race, class, gender, and sexuality in uh, perpetuating inequity and how people navigate institutions and public policies um, in a variety of contexts, whether it's in the world of HIV care or in welfare systems and economic support systems for low-income families. I'm ultimately interested in how people navigate institutions in order to get access to the resources that they need. Can you explain that research that focuses on the intersection of inequality, public policy, and institutions a little bit more uh, how are those areas connected? Perhaps the best way to explain that is to give an example. So my book, Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV Confront Inequality, is a qualitative study of women living with HIV in Chicago. And my team and I interviewed over 100 women living with HIV in Chicago of different racial, ethnic, and economic backgrounds. Um, one of the things that became really important as we talked to women about their lives as they navigated the healthcare system and social service organizations and operated within their families and neighborhoods and communities was the importance of understanding what I call the HIV safety net, that network of organizations that help women living with HIV. And these organizations are really important because when women are diagnosed, they often believe that they have a death sentence. Um, they believe that either the illness itself will take them out or they have a social death sentence. They, they worry about the social stigma that um, might they might experience by virtue of their HIV status. So part of what I'm trying to understand or what I was trying to understand in the book is how institutions help women navigate that status, how they help women move from what I call dying from to living with to thriving despite HIV. And what we learn in the case of the HIV safety net is that they're helping women not just learn how to move from dying from to living with to thriving despite HIV, but they're also learning how to navigate a host of other inequities. They are a diagnosis often dying from other kinds of traumas, other kinds of struggles, economic struggles, the history and legacy of racism in their lives, um, the ways in which gender inequality has shaped their access to resources. So they're dying from a whole host of things. And what the HIV safety net does is it helps women by giving them access to resources and helping them get um, active politically um, in ways that prove to be quite impactful for their lives and the lives of others. So my interest is right at that intersection. I'm interested in the inequality. 
I'm interested in the organizations that women navigate, and I'm interested in the ways that public policy shapes their survival and potential mobility. So you were known for your expertise on social inequality and HIV. Can you explain a bit about how you conduct this research and what you are working to address? Sure. So I will uh, begin by telling a story. Um, when I was interviewing women um, early on in the study, um, women talked to me about the struggles that they were experiencing, but they also talked to me about the importance of the HIV safety net. And it was characterized by a woman who um, provides the first line of the book, Remaking a Life. It's a woman named Dawn. And she says, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. Now that's a pretty provocative statement. Um, how is it that an illness responsible for the deaths of millions around the world can be credited with helping to save Dawn's life? And what I would come to learn is that what Dawn was really saying is if it weren't for the HIV safety net, I'd probably be dead. If it weren't for the access to healthcare, if it weren't for the access to social support, if it weren't for the access to economic assistance to get me to a place of stability, if it weren't for the political engagement that taught me how to use my voice to talk to politicians, talk to members of my community, talk to leaders of organizations about what it's like to live with HIV and what our needs are, then I'd probably be dead. That's what Dawn is, is signaling for us in terms of the importance of safety nets and how life-changing, life-saving, life-transformative they can be. So part of what I see my work doing is making a strong case for the power of safety nets. Um, we often in our political rec rhetoric demonize safety nets. We worry about freeloading and fraud and we've been conditioned and I use the term very deliberately conditioned to believe that all safety nets are problematic. And what the HIV community has shown quite effectively when we think about the major transformation that has happened of HIV from a death sentence to a manageable chronic illness is not just the importance of the medical advances and the scientific advances that happen, but also the building of a safety net that supports people living with HIV so that they can thrive and that they can live out to um, pretty much their normal life expectancy. So what I see this book doing is demonstrating the power of safety nets. And I think that what we find in this moment of COVID is that everybody needs safety nets. Those of us who were convinced we would never need a safety net, and we were always talking about those people and people very different from us, are finding that we are one job loss, we are one pandemic, we are one major crisis away from being in a situation where we too need a safety net. So I see my book as discussing what it was that the HIV community created and how we might think about its replicability in other contexts. Why is this an important topic to discuss, not only within academic institutions, but also beyond taking it into communities and engaging them in the work? Well, I think for, the, for exactly the reasons that I discussed, I mean, you know, if you look at COVID, for example, it's really encouraged all of us to rethink 
you know, our relationship to economic survival and what, what's our backup plan if there's a crisis, to think about if a member of our family falls ill, um, what support do we need to be able to still uh, survive and, and subsist and function? So I think that the utility of the work is really that it, number one, highlights the importance of the HIV safety net in and of itself and our need to shore that up because we are not finished with the epidemic. We still have way too many cases and way too many deaths and it's still not an epidemic that has been ended. But it's also to show the importance of, of that kind of modeling that it provides. And I think that it's important for our communities, our policymakers, the general public to hear this information because oftentimes what they hear is a safety net, safety nets are problematic, right? It's just for people who are freeloading and it's a it's not a ladder, it's a hammock and it's anti to the American way of life, et cetera. And what the book shows is that it really adds complexity and demonstrates that, um, in fact, they can be quite beneficial and powerful and critical for people to be able to survive. So I am have been deeply invested in getting the word out about the book and um, making sure that it's, it's in the public discourse to, to get us to rethink how we think about not just HIV, but also safety nets. You mentioned that one of your titles at U of M is University Diversity and Social Transformation Professor. Can you share a little bit about that and what some of the objectives are that you're working toward in that role? Sure. Well, I'm really honored to be part of the National Center for Institutional Diversity. I think that it's a very powerful part of the U of M campus, and um, it is fundamentally interested in thinking about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion and access um, in a variety of institutional settings, but especially within higher education. So this is, um, and K through 12 education. So this is a collective of scholars who are doing really cutting edge research to think about how we solve the challenges around how do we get to full diversity, equity, inclusion, and access? What does that look like? How, what should that feel like? And how do we measure it to make sure that we're doing it um, appropriately? So I'm really excited to be part of the, the community and to be engaging um, with this group of scholars who are studying everything from um, access to the University of Michigan community, to um, college affordability questions, to the um, experiences of first-generation college students and how they navigate these environments. I'd like to transition a bit because March is Women's History Month. And in your experience and opinion, you know, your, your expertise, your research, and also just your experiences, what are some of the challenges today that women are currently facing? Well, I mean, there's a number of them. I mean, if you want to, I mean, we can start to look at economic inequality, for example, as a, a site of inequity um, where um, women, we still see a wage gap between um, men and women, and we also see a, a wealth gap as well. I think that, you know, the disparities that women see economically translate in all kinds of ways from their abilities to leave abusive and problematic relationships or relationships that they deem problematic to the ability to be primary caretakers to their children. We think about the number of female headed households 
to the ability for women to climb up to the highest ranks of our um, institutions, whether it's government or corporations, et cetera. So I think the economic equity issue for women is really, really important. The other thing that I think is really important is the question of women's health. And I think of women's health broadly from uh, access to reproductive care to um, access to um, general services and to make sure that, that women um, are taken seriously when they um, manifest with certain health issues where they are given the information to be able to confront health challenges and that they are given the tools to be able to navigate the, the healthcare system. And then I also think that we're still seeing way too much gender-based violence in terms of fundamental um, societal inequities between genders mean that women are disadvantaged in um, a whole host of interactions that, that turn violent. And what we also, of course, have to add is that our definition of women has um, powerfully expanded in inclusive ways so that when we're talking about women, we're not talking about cisgender women only, we're talking about transgender women. And we focus the lens on transgender women, we see the inequities magnified significantly. We see the ways in which transgender women are, find it very, very difficult to find employment and often have to engage in the underground economy and sex work in order to survive because people will not hire them. We find the ways in which um, transgender women struggle to get access to services because they are misgendered on government forms or they are working with providers, healthcare providers, social service providers who don't understand their unique needs and don't know how to provide gender affirming experiences. And we also know that transgender women are disproportionately exposed to violence, whether it's um, violence on the street, violence in their relationships, violence when they enter institutions. Um, so I think that it's really incumbent upon us as we think about Women's History Month to think about all women and to think about how our work is absolutely not done yet in, that, in those regards. So continuing you know, in this Women's History Month theme, would you like to share with us a woman or a few within your life to whom you've looked to for inspiration or someone who has helped shape the person who you are today? Oh my goodness. So many people. Well, obviously for me, my mind goes directly, first of all, to my mother, Harriet Watkins, who is a, is a retired teacher at a school for pregnant and parenting teens here in Michigan. She used to teach at a school called Catherine Ferguson Academy that um, is no longer in existence but um, was a, a school for pregnant and parenting teenage girls. And um, the impact that my mother had on me in terms of, you know, and continues to have on me um, in terms of the life lessons and the, the warmth and the humor and the beauty and the engagement with community is something that um, has very much shaped me. She was and continues to be, because she's still living, thank goodness, um, you know, the heart of our family and I'm forever indebted to her. The other thing that I'll say is that I went to women's college. So I went to Spelman College, a historically black college for women. And when I was there, the president was Janetta Cole. And um, Dr. Cole continues also to be a force in my life, a mentor, um, someone I look to, and was my first example of a woman in a position of significant leadership. She was 
the first college president I'd ever seen, period. And imagine my first image of a college president is a black woman, how that shapes your psyche and how that shaped the psyche of all of the women at Spelman and continues to shape the psyche of all the women at Spelman because we have had a number, we've had a steady stream of black female presidents since then who have led the institution and um, what that means in terms of in, in terms of role modeling. So um, Spelman in general surrounded me with amazing women and um, exposed me to the world of higher education as a career and got me excited about sociology and um, really continue to be huge forces and influences for me. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom that you would like to share with young women aspiring to lead and impact change as you have done? The first thing that I would say is um, believe in your power and your worth. I think that we get so many messages that suggest that we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not this enough, we're not that enough because society has certain frames and boxes that they wanna put us in. And I think that ultimately we have to define for ourselves what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a powerful and successful woman. Um, we've got to define that for ourselves and um, we've got to believe in our ability to be able to realize that. I think my other piece of advice is surround yourself with other amazing women because it will lift you up, it will fortify you, um, push back on that cultural dynamic around, you know, women can't work together or et cetera, you know, those very problematic gendered stereotypes. Some of the richest experiences I've ever had are being part of women's only um, spaces, whether it's a conference, whether it's my college, whether it is an organization, those experiences are so powerful and so rich. So I would say, you know, make sure that you are surrounding yourself with other, you know, amazing women. And the other thing that I would say is um, continue to be aware of, learn more about, and be ready to fight for women who are marginalized, women who need a voice, women whose voice is not represented in the room while decisions are being made that will affect their lives. Um, be that voice or bring other women into the room to be their own voice. Um, to recognize where we have privilege and power to be able to, to do that and to recognize that part of our role um, can be to help improve the lives of other women, even if they're women from very different walks of life from our own. So those are the things that I would say in terms of encouragement in this Women's History Month. Thank you so much, Dr. Watkins Hayes. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And I hope that we get to speak again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Truly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.